Hi there, welcome to the Neurodivergent Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Griffith, and I am so excited to have you here. On this podcast, we talk about all forms of neurodivergence, from ADHD to learning disorders to giftedness to autism and more. If any of that sounds familiar, welcome to Neurodivergent Magic. Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, and welcome back to another episode of the Neurodivergent Magic Podcast. I am so excited to bring you today's interview, because today we are talking to one of my college friends, Mandolin, and uh, we're not just talking to them because they're an old college friend. We are talking to them because they are a licensed uh, social worker, soon to be licensed clinical social worker, and they have some stuff to tell us about what the social work field is like for a neurodivergent person and what social workers learn about neurodivergence. And it's really enlightening, really fascinating stuff. Um, I highly recommend you check out this episode. So without any further ado, let's jump on into it. Hey, Mandolin, how are you? Doing all right, how are you? I am so, so, so excited for this because I actually don't know the answers to a lot of the questions I'm going to be asking you, which is not always the way these interviews go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Yeah. So for those of you listening, Mandolin is a licensed social worker, soon to be a clinical licensed social worker. And they are here to tell us all about um, what social workers do and don't learn about neurodivergence and maybe some ways the social work field could be improved according to their point of view. We will see. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's see. Let's just start with a little bit. I know this is the worst question in the world, but a little bit just about you in general so that the people listening feel like they know you a little more. Yeah, sure. Um, I have been a licensed social worker for about five years now. Um, and within that five years, I have worked within the domestic violence field here in Dayton. Um, and I have also worked for the last four years, um, with the LGBTQ plus community, uh, specifically with people who are, uh, HIV AIDS positive. Um, and then within the last year, uh, I have been doing my, uh, clinical internship to get my master's degree at, uh, Equitas Health, where, um, I have been seeing uh, LGBTQ plus, uh, clients who present with a multiple, uh, multiple issues. Um, everyone's pretty unique, but the main theme honestly has been like most people are neurodivergent that I see and <laughs> I love them so much. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I have just been going through uh, work and stuff. I work about 60 hours a week, uh, with clinicals and everything. So Woof. yeah, it's not <laughs> a, it's not an easy task becoming like a social worker in general, like with your master's degree and working is, is a ridiculous task. And it yeah. makes me upset that the field isn't more accessible, but we'll get to that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump on into that. What about the social work field has been accessible and what hasn't been? Like, what are some maybe positives, but also some critiques? Um, I think a positive is probably that uh, you are in a space where everyone at least should be open-minded and should be open to like learning about um, disability um, movements and uh, neurodivergency and all of the good things um, that people should be interested in. Uh, the con is, is that like the education system, especially like higher ed, isn't really set up for people who are neurodivergent. No. Um, 
<laughs> also, like none of the class structures are really set up for people who are neurodivergent or even need accommodations. Um, I have found that the only way I would have been able to do my program is honestly uh, online because it's a pretty much like set your own pace. If I didn't have that, um, I don't know if I would have completed my program. Um, and it's something that I've heard from multiple people, like how inaccessible like the social work field is just because the amount of time and effort that goes into it. Um, the test is pretty inaccessible. Uh, we take a really long exam to get your license just to be a social worker. And we take an even longer exam to uh, become a clinical social worker. Um, and the way those exams are set up is like you have to pick the best answer out of all right answers. Um, <laughs> okay, yes. no one can see that, but I just rolled my eyes really hard. Um, that is a nightmare for an autistic person, dear God. <laughs> right, right. Because you're sitting and you're looking at all of the options and like some of the options you're sitting there and you're like in this certain situation, which I have been in, is the option I would choose. But then you get that wrong because there is no nuance behind the question. Mm -hmm. um, and there is no like peopling behind the question. It's just like a flat black and white question, which is horrendous. That doesn't seem very applicable to your actual job either. No, it doesn't because <laughs> people are so, um, people are, they're just, we operate in shades of gray. And so nothing you're ever doing in the social work field is black and white. Um, though they try to make it black and white and it doesn't really work that way ever. Yeah. Yeah. I can <laughs> totally see that. I can see maybe some neurodivergent folks doing really well on that exam because we are such black and white thinkers, but mm -hmm. I can also see it being just, a nightmare, the length of it, the amount of time you have to sit still. And I'm sure fidgets are not allowed because we're grownups, um, which is so dumb. Grownups are allowed to use fidgets. Um, <laughs> yes. But there's, there's a weird stigma around that for sure. Um, so as like someone who's gone through the higher ed process myself, like I can totally attest to the fact that it is wildly inaccessible, like inaccessible. It's ridiculous. I had three hour classes and those weren't even the longest ones. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, sure we took breaks sometimes, but sometimes the teachers would forget or they, you know, wouldn't bother with it. And yeah, it, I can see the online being much more accessible, but probably still problematic in its own ways. It definitely is. Um, you have, I think for me, like it plays on my executive dysfunction, uh, because you are given a list of tasks to complete by the end of the week. And that list varies wildly from like, oh, you have like one journal entry due and a lecture to like, you have a project due and you also have a paper due and you also like the list becomes way too long. And then I just sometimes end up staring at it for a couple of days until it has to get done. Um, and I've talked with like a few of my peers and that's been like, something they have also experienced where it's just putting it off until it absolutely has to get done. Mm -hmm. um, and you also don't have any like sense of people around you either since you're in it alone. So like you don't have anyone there to kind of body double with almost right. um, to just sit there and do the work. 
which is also just awful um especially because like I my friends and I at least like we will call each other to a body double during work when we're working from home um and I can't do that in my program because everyone's so spread out and I genuinely don't know anybody's names yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah I can see that being such a problem like the online aspect it just puts so much of the responsibility on you which to be fair it's higher ed like you should be able to handle the responsibility but responsibility can like look different ways for different people and a lot of neurodivergent folks it's less about like what I think neurotypicals would call like self-discipline and (laughs) what I think personally for me tends to be shame-based motivation rather than yeah so I think we need smaller deadlines a lot of the time and more flexible deadlines and Mm -hmm. just some general accommodations that a lot of times in higher ed specifically, they seem really resistant to. Really resistant to. And I think also just like in education in general, it's really hard to get accommodations unless you have on paper from a doctor saying that like, these are the specific accommodations that you need. Um, I know during my undergrad, I had to get accommodations because of just like chronic illness. And they absolutely would not give those to me unless my doctor wrote out very specifically what I needed. Um, and my doctor was very resistant to doing that. So I can only imagine how hard it is to get like a therapist or a psych or even a PCP to do that. Um, and if you're self-diagnosed because you can't afford that, it also is a huge barrier, especially when you are in college or higher ed. Um, and you don't have access to a lot of funds as most people who are in those periods of their life don't have. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if you want to know more about self-diagnosis and the barriers to professional diagnosis and all of that, you can go back and listen to, um, our last episode actually, or a couple episodes ago. Um, it's just called self-diagnosis is valid because it is. Um, (laughs) so yeah, you can go check that out there. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, But yeah, so I am curious about what exactly you learned um, about neurodivergence in your social work program. Like, do you feel like you got a good education about what neurodivergence is and stuff? Or do you, especially since that seems to be the majority of the people you're working with, um, (laughs) or do you feel like it was maybe lacking in some ways? Um, Definitely lacking. Uh, I, so every program almost, you have to take a class that goes over the DSM and almost every diagnosis in it. So it's a pretty fast paced course where like every week you're taking a chunk of the DSM and learning it. Sidebar, the DSM is probably one of the most fallible diagnostic tools. I have a lot of like extra opinions on it, but that's (laughs) beside the point. Um, We do have to use it for insurance reasons. So I understand why we have to learn it. However, uh, there, we went over maybe over the period of a week through any diagnosis that was related to neurodivergency. Um, and that was it. And then it never really came up in curriculum again. Um, and I had brought up recently with one of my professors who like checks in on me during my internship. I was like, I don't understand why we didn't get more education on this. Like 
our program is definitely more focused on um, mitigating the white supremacy uh, roots of social work in the helping fields um, rather than like working also with like neurodivergent people and helping the different facets of people we see. Um, and it feels very, very um, like reactionary almost as to like why we are doing that. And I think we'll see more reactionary um, education happen about uh, neurodivergency as more people begin to talk about it. Um, but other than like that week long course, we didn't really have anything. And then I brought it up to my professor, like I was saying previously, and uh, he just said, well, we can't cover everything. That's for your internship to do. That's how you learn in field is you just learn by doing. And I was like, oh no, okay. Um, I've been very, very, very blessed. Um, my current supervisor for my internship is, uh, one of their specialties is working with people who are neurodivergent um, and they plan on potentially going back and getting their doctorate to do uh, like some uh, research on people uh, who are within the neurodivergent umbrella um, and how to apply, I, at least I think, I don't wanna like speak on what the research will definitively be, but I think it's going to be of like how to apply current uh, therapeutic modalities to help people who are neurodivergent because obviously a lot of the research focuses very specifically on people who are neurotypical and also men so yeah yes, for <laughs> sure so I just want to take a quick break and point out that this this is one of the reasons self-diagnosis is so valid because if you've done more than a week's worth of research on your neurodivergence, you may have gotten more of an education than the people who are supposed to be diagnosing you. And that I'm not, not to say that that's a perfect system. Self-diagnosis is not a perfect system by any stretch, but goodness, that, that really blows my mind that you just, you got a week. And then when you brought up, Hey, I think this might be a problem. It was like, well, deal with it. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely, it made me upset and I debriefed with my supervisor about it. I was like, I hated every second of that interaction. And they were like, mm -hmm, same, but also that's pretty typical. Um, and yes, I talked to uh, at least the few clients I have um, that their self-diagnosis is very valid because it's really hard to access those the tests needed to get the formal diagnosis, first of all. And it's also really hard to get medical professionals to listen to someone, um, to take them seriously. And it upsets me very greatly as someone who works, uh, like part of my job, my job job is to work with a clinic and it just to get medications for someone is, pulling teeth and having watched like some of my friends and some of my clients go through the process of getting diagnosed uh, with like autism or ADHD like makes me unreasonably angry because it's ridiculous. Why do you think doctors and medical professionals are so resistant to diagnose people or to take them seriously? I think part of it, at least right now is everyone sees it as a fad um, because 
TikTok, you know, people just get on things. I hate it. I hate it so much. I think that if you are identifying with a diagnosis or you are someone who feels seen in a space or a diagnosis, then there's a reason why that works for you and it should be explored and taken seriously. Um, do I think that the diagnosis should be given to you the first session? Probably not. You don't know anyone after the first session or that first doctor's appointment, but also you need to do your due diligence as like a practitioner of medical care or even mental health care and take that person seriously. And I think a lot of it is just like, oh, you're drug seeking or, oh, you just want to like be with the cool kids because it's a cool diagnosis right now, which just isn't the case. That also totally blows my mind because I, I know you're right that a lot of people see this as a fad and everything, but like, what's the harm in being wrong? <laughs> like, Right. I wish I knew. I think like totally my own opinion. I think that a lot of medical professionals have a lot of ego wrapped up in not being wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of social work practitioners have a lot of ego wrapped up in not being wrong. And I think that they're like you go through all the schooling and stuff and you kind of feel like you're an authority on something, but however, you are never an authority on someone else's life. I don't care what kind of licensures or doctorates or MDs you have. You're just not. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So do you want to talk about TikTok? <laughs> do you want to uh, talk about the influence that has had on the neurodivergent movement or not really? Yes, actually, I love TikTok. I actually um, recommended to one of my clients, I was like, I want you to watch the first 10 videos on the highly sensitive person. Can't vouch for the next 10 videos after that. But I was like, if this fits you the way I think it does, I want to discuss this further. I think TikTok is a great tool. Um, I don't know if you had any specific questions. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I didn't know if you wanted to delve into TikTok or not. Um, I guess my question was just like, and I think you've made this relatively clear already, but like, do you, you don't think it's harming the neurodivergent community to like see all of these people like sort of who are unlicensed or whatever, putting their experiences out there? I absolutely don't. I think that... Honestly, as someone who is a, like in the field and also someone who is seeing the impact it has on people's lives to find out through TikTok that they are neurodivergent, it is an amazing tool. And I think that self-diagnosis or even people on TikTok speaking about um, their experiences and the kind of like signs or like telltale uh things that you can be like the I think I saw some uh TikTok creator a couple days ago talk about ADHD drop um and I was talking about it in a session with a client earlier today and they were like wait that's a thing and I was like, yes, absolutely. It's a thing. Like that is a thing. And this person isn't licensed. They're not a 
therapist, they're not a social worker, they're not a doctor, but like all of that information is so important and it doesn't get shared within the mental health community because everyone relies on the DSM and relies on trainings um, that are created by people who are pushing a certain narrative that the board approves because um, all all educational options sorry for your license have to be board approved so it obviously ultimately becomes like a narrative they're willing to push um if that makes sense i think so yeah yeah for sure there's a lot of politics wrapped up in the dsm for sure <laughs> yes the dsm and licensing boards and well i think like they do good things about like keeping people safe from like harmful practitioners and like harmful clinicians. I, there's also, a, there's a lot of politics and a lot of, um, a lot of discrimination wrapped up in all of that, uh, that is yet to be explored. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. Do you have thoughts on the text revised that's coming out here soon or should we? <laughs> And I don't know enough to ask a specific question. I just was wondering if you had thoughts about it, because I know I have a couple thoughts on the autism update. I uh, am really upset about it, uh, mostly because uh, I have neurodivergent people in my life who are working towards getting all the what all of the uh, materials together, I guess. Um, to get autism, autistic diagnosis, um, diagnoses. I am so sorry. Uh, <laughs> words are hard. <laughs> um, and seeing the new criteria and that they're going to make it more strict and then open up the ADHD criteria to be less strict. Like I, it makes me unreasonably upset because these are people who are late in life diagnosed, um, who hopefully will be late diagnosed autistics. Um, and it is really important and really validating for them to get that. And the fact that the board, the, they're taking that away from them, like makes me really upset. Um, well, yeah. And it's, it's hard not to see it as um, just straight up financially motivated because so many people on the board for the DSM work for these pharmaceutical companies and ADHD is something that we medicate and autism is something that we don't. And so that's really frustrating um, to see them open up the ADHD. Um, not that they shouldn't be, you know, I, I do think ADHD can obviously historically has kept out women and people of color and queer folks, and it's been a problem. And so it should be opened up to include those lived experiences, but so mm -hmm. should other diagnoses. We shouldn't be funneling people into the one that we medicate. Yes, absolutely. And the thing that like, I think makes me the most upset is that the fear is, is that they're going to label a lot of people as uh, medic medication resistant um, ADHD, uh, which then just leaves you uh, up a creek without a paddle. I don't know if I can cuss or not. So I'm not. No, it's fine. It. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You'll be up shit creek without a paddle. And that just makes me, it makes me so sad because 
A, you then have to look other places other than your therapist and your doctors for resources on what you can do to make your life more functional for yourself. Um, and then you have this label that's on your chart and it follows you and it goes places with you of not being able to medicate your ADHD. And I haven't seen any stigma behind that now, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's stigma behind that in five to 10 years. Absolutely. Because within the medical community, medication resistant ADHD will be code for autism, which is code for, you know, a lot of stigmatized beliefs that a lot of medical professionals still hold, unfortunately. Yeah. It, yeah, I completely agree. I think also a lot of people fear getting an ADHD diagnosis because some professionals think it's a medication seeking diagnosis, which absolutely is not the case. Um, no one wants to just be seeking medications for something that is really impacting the way they function. Um, it just, it really breaks my heart that there are so many people out there who just don't don't have the empathy to put themselves in other people's shoes and see that like the things they are doing cause like actual real lasting harm. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think, do you have any advice for neurodivergent folks who are struggling to get a diagnosis or to be taken seriously? Like, do you have any, anything that might help uh, a social worker take them more seriously? Um, I would encourage you to take the RADs R by yourself. You can find many different ones online, but the thing I have found to help with the masking bit of that, uh, if you are worried that your score isn't high enough or that you are masking on certain things is to have a buddy with you who can kind of be like, but what about X, Y, and Z? Like you, you also do all of these things and you're just like, but it's not that bad. And it's like, no, you should also mark that question. Like, <laughs> so I think doing that and then also um, maybe finding a therapist. I highly recommend finding a therapist who like actually believes you first of all um, and is willing to hear you out. I think any therapist worth their salt is going to well, not therapist, but any social worker worth their salt is going to hear you out um, and should also be kind of tracking um, any things they see in session that might point towards uh, a, a potential neurodivergent um, diagnosis. Um, I also think, not gonna like brag on you real fast, but I am. Uh, my supervisor and I were looking at uh, your autism and ADHD binder and we found it just absolutely completely helpful. <laughs> like I got them, like, I was like, you have to follow Megan on Instagram. Like you got to follow her TikTok. Like you got to get out there. You got to do it. Um, and have really found like your content really helpful. And I think also walking in with examples of like, hey, this person said this, I do all of this stuff. Um, 
a lot of my friends and I, when we go to our therapy sessions or go see the doctor, will pull up TikToks and be like, this is the mood for today. Or did you know I also do this? And I think that's insanely helpful. It, as someone who is younger and uses TikTok a lot, like it's insanely helpful. So anything you think would be helpful probably is. And if it isn't helpful, um, I don't think that reflects poorly on the person at all who is collecting all this information. I think it is more reflective on the provider and potentially is time to seek a new provider um, for whatever you're doing. And I know it sucks and it is really hard to find people who are willing to listen to you, um, but it is worth it when you finally find those doctors and those therapists who are willing to sit down and actually like listen. Absolutely. I think all of that was amazing advice, especially about, you know, going through the struggle bus and finding the provider who will actually listen to you. I can attest, like I have had so many therapists uh, over the years due to insurance changes and moves and stuff like that. And they've all been wonderful for different reasons. But my most recent therapist is the first one who, when I said, Hey, I think I might be autistic. She was the first one who's ever been like, yeah, dude, let's talk about it. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, that's it. There's no like psychological mind games where you're going to try to like, see if I'm lying or (sighs) so I can attest that that is really helpful. And yeah, if you're interested in the ADHD and autism diagnosis binders I've put together, um, I do love them. I do think they're incredibly helpful. Um, I will put the links in the show notes, um, for you as well. So yeah, (laughs) I'm so glad you brought those up. Thank you. That's so sweet. (laughs) You're welcome. They are like genuinely very helpful. Like, uh, I actually, one of my friends purchased one recently and we have been going through all of the tests together, like, uh, just because they have a really hard time differentiating between like what is masking and what is not. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've been going through the binder, uh, together when they want to um and they go through it with their partner also when they want to and the partner's like maybe maybe uh maybe you do do that a lot (laughs) (laughs) which is a lot of fun for all of us because it's um to see them be validated like that is honestly really huge and is just amazing um so yeah it's a it's a great resource really hard plug for Megan, even though you're already listening to the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And I can absolutely agree with going through it with a partner or a friend can be so unbelievably helpful. When I went through it with my partner, with my husband, uh, it was really funny to watch him like react. (laughs) Like sometimes he, because it's not so much that he didn't believe me that I was autistic. It's more that he doesn't know enough about autism to know yes or no, which is fair. Um, and so as we would go through these questions, he'd be like, oh, you do totally do that. Or sometimes I would mark something and he'd be like, what are you talking about? You definitely do that. And I'm like, no, I don't. He's like, you, <laughs> yes. Like when it came to the, the restricted food, yes. I was like, I'm not that bad. And he's like, you're one of the pickiest eaters I've ever met in my life. And I'm like, what do you mean? Oh no. <laughs> like, because, you know, growing up in a very like practical Midwestern household, being picky yeah. was just like, you know, so stupid. <laughs> it was just a dumb thing to be. Um, so anyway, anyway, <laughs> it well, just makes me, oh, go okay. ahead. it just makes me think of the, uh, the emotional support block of cheese that lived in your fridge <laughs> all of college. <laughs> Yes. So if you don't know, 
I, how would you know, but Mandela and I went to college together and yes, I did. <laughs> I had an emotional support block of cheese in my fridge, emotional support ice cream in my freezer. And that's like what I ate. <laughs> there is a good safe food. It is a great safe food. <laughs> yes, absolutely. My new safe food is mini ravioli. Uh, it's delightful. Yes. I love that. I love that so much. (laughs) So before we go ahead and close out, is there anything that you want people to walk away from this episode knowing? Like maybe somebody who's thinking about getting into social work or somebody who's seeing a social worker. I don't know, like whatever is on your brain, like this is what I want someone to walk away knowing right now. Um, If you're going into the social work field or thinking about going into the social work field, you have to be very aware that you are walking into a field that prizes neurotypicalness, prizes whiteness, and prizes uh, able-bodied people above everything else um, when it comes to practitioners and also when it comes to our clients. Um, Also people who are cis and hetero. Um, And so you need to walk into your coursework ready to kind of dismantle that because if you are not actively dismantling it there's very few challenges to that type of thinking that you will find in your curriculum um always question everything always um and honestly it'll make you a great social worker and it it will make you a better social work student um and i think for people who are seeing social workers or have social workers who are therapists um I would say if they're a social worker worth their salt, um, they will listen to you. And if they are not listening to you, go find another one. Um, I know it'll be really challenging, but you are worth it as a person. um, And you are worthy of being seen as a whole person for who you truly are, rather than uh, someone who they want you to be, um, to fit into a box. Um, and if something isn't working, vocalize that because we won't know if something's working unless you don't tell us, uh, unless you tell us. So that's it. I think both of those are incredible pieces of advice. So thank you so much. Um, and thank you for being here and for chatting, uh, about all of this good stuff. Um, is there anything like, do you want people to follow you or do you have like a a cause you want to support or anything like that? Uh, don't follow me on Instagram or anything like that because it is just my dog and my partner, um, (laughs) nothing educational whatsoever. Um, but I would encourage people to wherever you're at, if you are in at least the United States, uh, try looking into mutual aid in your communities to, um, help out and within your community and also, uh, speak up against, um, uh, transphobia when you can. Uh, trans people are awesome and uh, we need a lot of support right now. So yeah. Absolutely. 100%. Trans lives matter so much. And yes. yeah, any ways you can support them would be stupendous. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and I will see, or I guess you all will hear me uh, next Saturday. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you give us a follow over on Spotify, leave a review over on Apple Podcasts, and tune in next Saturday for another amazing episode.